beginning in Mark 14, verse 12. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth. One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they were saddened. And one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied. One who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them. And they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is God's word. Let's pray together and ask for his blessing upon our time in his word. Lord, this is your word, and we pray that you would bless this time in your word by showing us the wonder of Christ, whose body was broken, whose blood was shed, in whom we live today, and in whom your people have fellowship with one another and fellowship with you through Christ our Lord. It is in his name that we ask that you would Give us much grace in our time together in his word. Amen. It was New Year's Eve about 10 or 11 years ago. I was with a group of college students. I was a college student at the time. Uh, A group of us college students had been in uh, various places throughout China for about two and a half weeks. And we were back in Beijing, China, on New Year's Eve after having been out in the country. And uh, after two and a half weeks, uh, we were craving a little bit of Western food, to say the least. And so we got to Beijing and we went to Wangfujing Street, which is a big hub in central Beijing where there are such wonderful delicacies or such wonderful restaurants as Outback Steakhouse and Olive Garden 
and for the college students at that time, the glorious beauty that was McDonald's. And so I remember walking into that McDonald's and there was a group of us uh, that were there and we saw some other Westerners there in that McDonald's and we were ordering our food and we were sitting down and after two and a half weeks without Western food, there were a number of us that words did not even have to be said. We just gave each other that knowing nod of understanding of where we had come from and the joy of communing again around food that was familiar to us. There was that shared experience, that shared background, that shared meal. Though comical as we shared it together, it helps to illustrate or it helped to illustrate a bond that we had together. And it's funny the way meals work like that. Many times to sit down with another person for a meal is to sit down and fellowship with them, to sit down with walls broken down, with barriers lowered, and to sit down in relationship together. There's a level of acceptance. There's a level of understanding. There's a level of knowledge. And as we consider Jesus giving to his people the Lord's Supper in this passage, we are going to see the manner by which He gives the Lord's Supper in order to commemorate the work that He would do and in order to anticipate the work that is still coming. To commemorate and to anticipate His redemption of His people. So this morning we're going to see this as we walk through Jesus preparing and then giving and then explaining the Lord's Supper to His disciples and to us as well. We're going to see it in his preparing, his giving, and his explaining. First, his preparing, verses 12 to 16. Verse 12, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? The Passover was a meal that the people of Israel held very closely in their background, and in their history. For it was born out of God's rescuing power in leading them out of slavery in Egypt. As the Lord, uh, in His judgment upon the people of Egypt for their, their sin and their captivity of Israel, He unleashed plague after plague after plague upon their Egyptian captors. Eventually the last plague would be the plague of the death of the firstborn. And the Lord told the people of Israel to slaughter a lamb, a sacrifice, in order that the blood of the sacrifice might be wiped on the doorposts of their homes and the angel of death that was going to sweep through might pass over the people of Israel because of the blood of the sacrifice. As judgment poured out upon Egypt, judgment passed over Israel through the blood of the lamb. There was salvation through sacrifice. And now the people of Israel would celebrate Passover in remembering. It was a, it was a festive time as, as they would remember. And as children would ask parents, they would ask grandparents, they would ask those gathered in the home to celebrate this meal, tell me what it is we celebrate. Tell me the significance of this that we partake of together. And they would remember the Lord's redeeming grace. 
So now Passover is approaching as Jesus' death is approaching in Mark 14. And Jesus' disciples ask him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And say to the owner of the house that he enters, the teacher asks, where's my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. It is likely that Jesus had already made preparations or already made arrangements for him as his disciples and probably others to join them in this Passover meal. And so as Jesus calmly lays out for them what is planned, what is orchestrated, we see some of his calmness, his, his, his resolve in going into Jerusalem, though he knows what awaits him, and though he still has much to teach and to explain to his disciples. This passage reveals the complete sovereign wisdom and the humble submission of Jesus as he enters in to this Passover picture to further instruct and to further display his redeeming work before his audience. As we see the sovereign wisdom of Jesus in orchestrating this and making arrangements for this, we see there there is nothing left to chance as events march closer and closer to the cross. There is nothing left to, to, to possibly unravel for the complete sovereign hand of God is bringing this about. Perhaps you are with us this morning and you are not yet a Christian. I encourage you to know that it is not a mistake that you are seated exactly where you are seated this morning. It is by no happenstance or it is not due to anything other than the hand of God that you are hearing God's word this morning. And it is no mistake that you are in fact hearing this specific passage, this specific text in Mark 14, 12 to 25. For in hearing this text, which is no accident that you are hearing, you are actually hearing, as we've already begun to see, much of the biblical storyline of God saving his people from sin and judgment and bringing his people to himself. And so you are going to hear unpacked throughout this message this morning the hope that all of us who are gathered here share in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so I encourage you to listen carefully and to consider the claims that Jesus makes about himself and about which we profess as his church. So we see the preparation as he has everything arranged, as he has the meal arranged, as he has the room arranged, even the man carrying the jar of water in order to lead them in, probably so as to not attract attention and a bit of a covert mission to get to this upper room. And now we will see him give and explain this Lord's Supper. So verse 16, the disciples left. They went into the city. They found the things as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. Then when evening came, in verse 17, Jesus arrived with the twelve. The twelve there are his disciples. Those whom he had called to himself and whom had been walking alongside of him and ministering alongside of him now for three years. Now the Passover was likely a meal that was shared in stages. So they would have, they would have had the lamb. They would have had... The meat. They would, have, they, would have, they would have shared, they would have discussed, there would have been a, a, a bit of a festive tone to this. Like I said, it's likely 
We don't know for certain. It's likely that there were other people gathered there, not just Jesus and his twelve. Hence why in a moment he'll explain that, that his betrayal will come at the hands of one of the twelve. Saying not from one of the ones in the periphery, but one of the twelve gathered here right around me. So it's likely this was a festive event up to this point as people celebrated the redeeming hand of God who passed over them in judgment. And Jesus arrives, but then as as the meal goes on, while they're reclining at the table eating in verse 18, he says to them, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now we know in verse 10 and 11, just previously right before we started this section, that Judas Iscariot had already begun to make arrangements to betray Jesus. And Jesus speaks of this personal nature. See the, see the emotion, see the, the tinge of this in, in Jesus, but also in his disciples. So he says, one of you will betray me, one who is even eating with me. And they were saddened. One by one, I don't know if it was just the disciples or if it was more people in the room as they asked, it's surely not I. I would not do such a thing, my Lord and my teacher. And Jesus says in verse 20, it is one of the twelve. In fact, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. And then look with me at verse 21. We could camp out for days, for weeks, for months, for years on this one verse. For he says, I will betray one who dips his bread into the same bowl as me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. You see the incredible paradox of verse 21. Look with, look, look with me at this again. He says, he, I, the Son of Man will go just as it has been written about him. The sovereign hand of God at work in bringing this about just as it has been ordained by an all-powerful God himself. And just as it has been prophesied through his word. But, we also see the responsibility of the one who would betray him. Woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. This incredible paradox of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, fully on display in verse 21. Now, divine sovereignty, if you're not familiar with this concept, it is simply the truth that Scripture teaches about the absolute will of God and His purposes in this world, which cannot be thwarted. The absolute will of God and His purposes in this world which cannot be thwarted or stopped. You see this at the beginning. The Son of Man will go just as it has been written about Him. It is not up for debate. It is not up for dispute. The Son of Man will go to the cross as it has been ordained and as it has been written about for centuries to this point. But Then we also see not just divine sovereignty, but we see human responsibility Which is this idea that we are all moral agents with responsibility for our actions. And we are not robots. We are free, rational beings who are accountable for our decisions and for our actions. And as Judas Iscariot has made arrangements for the betrayal and and, and the arrest of Jesus, he is responsible for these. 
And Jesus says, woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. Like, like the, the responsibility does rest on him in that. The mystery of this two realities that we cannot hold together perfectly in full understanding. So what do we do with this? Where these would appear to be in conflict before our human eyes and minds. These are not in conflict in the eye and mind of God. But what are we to make of these? Well, as we think about the sovereign wisdom in the work of God, we have no philosophical explanations that will satisfy all of the curiosities that we can muster. So I have not a philosophical explanation, but perhaps a pastoral consolation as Jesus' own death exemplifies for us. In Scripture, when we see the collision of the mysterious sovereign hand of God held together with the vile, evil sin of man, it always seems to reveal the triumph of God over the evil of man. Let me say that again. In Scripture, when we see the collision of the mysterious sovereign hand of God held together with the vile, evil sin of man, these two come together, it always seems to reveal the triumph of God over the evil sin of man, even in using evil, sinful man's actions for his redeeming purposes. And this passage itself and the events that are to come are a perfect illustration of this, of this promise and how Jesus himself submitted to being on the receiving end of such evil for the sake of the triumph of God over sin at the cross. The sin of Judas in betraying Jesus was used in the sovereign will of God to victoriously defeat sin at the cross of Jesus. Familiar words of Joseph in Genesis 50, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And yet we see the responsibility that rests upon the one who had betrayed Jesus. Woe! To that man. This woe, this language of woe, it means despair, agony, grief, destruction. All of these things that come together in a manner to say, literally, this is a great illustration of it, woe, judgment upon that man, it would be better for him, literally, if he had never been born than to face the woe that is coming upon him for his sins. See, Judas had everyone but Jesus fooled. Jesus didn't say, one of you is going to betray me. And the rest of the disciples said, yeah, we've been wondering about Judas for a while now. They said, Lord, surely one of us? You, n- no, it, it can't be one of us, for we have been with you through thick and thin for years now. The tragedy of the betrayal of Judas is that he wasn't part of the crowd on the outside. He was a central character who spent this time with Jesus. And Brothers and sisters, let me just say, in the woe, there is warning for all of us who would profess before others to know and to adore Jesus. He knows us far better than we know ourselves. It is possible to fool all around us, even those who we are closest to in this life, even those whom we travel with, even those whom we eat meals with, even those whom we spend our days, our evenings, our years with. Yet Jesus will not be fooled. In the woe, there is a warning. But also in the woe, there's a question. In verse 21, 
Like I said, we could, we could meditate on this. We could ponder this for far more time, far much longer than I have this morning. We want to revisit this. We want to consider this problem of God's sovereignty and the problem that this causes as we consider our own personal experiences, our own tears, our own scars, our own hurts, even our own neglect and abuse and mistreatment, all at the hands of others. What do we make of God's sovereignty? What do we make of how do we draw hope in such what would seem to be a a wooden theological truth? This passage answers that question too. For this passage shows us that we draw hope from God Himself who submitted to the mistreatment, the betrayal, the abuse, and even the murder of those who had it out for Him. In the sovereignty of God, He sent His Son to come and suffer mistreatment, betrayal, abuse, and even murder, and mocking, and flogging, and rejection by those who were nearest to Him in order that He might atone for sin. And in order, I think, that He might meet us in our despair, and maybe not feeling like woe is upon us because of God, but woe is upon us because of all that we have endured in this life. See, the careful preparation of Jesus in this moment, the steady declaration around the table of what was to come, and of his resolve in facing it. This careful preparation and the steady declaration all testified to the fact that Jesus was in control even in the crushing down of his life. And brother or sister, understand this reality that the Jesus who is in complete command of all things amidst his own coming destruction is a Jesus who is in complete control and can be trusted when you feel destruction is waiting for you around every corner. He says in verse 21, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about Him. This is no surprise. This is actually where your hope lies. Now, Picking up in verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and He gave thanks and He broke it. And He gave it to His disciples saying, take and eat. This is My body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. So where the hope lies in what Jesus is doing here is we are witnessing in this passage, as as the Passover is celebrated and it has been celebrated, we're witnessing a, a supernatural transformation as Jesus is now starting to illustrate in his giving of the Lord's Supper this reality that now there 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 is a there is a final lamb that has come. It's quite funny, it's quite interesting. In verse 13, look at this, so, or, or verse 12, I'm sorry, where the disciples asked Jesus, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? You, Jesus, our teacher, our master, we must make preparations for you of all people to eat the Passover. 
And they're asking in verse 12, where do you want us to go and do this? By verse 22, Jesus is telling them that they need not look for a place for me to eat the Passover lamb because I am the final Passover lamb. Jesus took bread, He gave thanks, and He broke it. And all that the original Passover symbolized, the judgment of God upon the sins of Egypt, the rescue of His people from their slavery in Egypt, their deliverance, their literal physical deliverance out of Egypt, all that these signified, and even just the continuing atoning grace of God to His people over the courses of centuries and over the course of of unspeakable rebellion and unspeakable sin against God and always bringing, being brought by God through His gracious provision of yet another lamb, yet another lamb, yet another lamb. No Passover comes where there is not a lamb to be slain. And here Jesus comes and says, I am the final, the perfect, the complete Passover lamb. And, he, and while they were eating, He took the bread and He said, Take and eat, for this is My body. You know, it's interesting, we start to see at this point in Mark some characteristics, some, some aspects of previous things we've seen in Mark's gospel that, 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 that we start to see them come to fruition or come to completion at this point of the passion of Jesus. In Mark 6 and Mark, Mark 8, when Jesus uh, fed the multitudes, and he fed them uh, fish and bread, and he, he, the language says that he took the bread, or he took, he took the food in those instances in Mark 6 and 8, and he gave thanks and he broke it. And what did he do? He provided food. For those who were physically hungry. For those who had that natural hunger that we all can identify with when it's been far too long since we've eaten. And yet now here we are in Mark 14 and Jesus is giving them a little bread and He's talking about His blood being shed and He's not doing so because the Passover lamb did not nourish them enough physically. They were probably full just as you would be full after Thanksgiving or Christmas lunch. What he's saying as he takes the bread and gives thanks for it in this pattern that is very similar to what we see in Mark 6 and 8, what we see in that is Jesus saying, I did not come just to give you physical nourishment, but I came to give you supernatural nourishment, and that is found in myself. For the bread and the fish, and all of these things that physically have kept you alive. I have come to give you myself to give you spiritual, eternal life. So Jesus takes the bread and he gives thanks for it. And yet he gives thanks for it and consider even where he is geographically as we consider these themes coming together. He's no longer in the Galilean countryside or far away from Jerusalem. He has now made it to Jerusalem. It's interesting that throughout Mark's Gospel, do you remember previous instances when people were healed? Maybe they were blind and they were healed so that they could see. Or maybe, maybe they were sick and, and near death and they were healed so that they now had life physically. In all of these instances, or in many of these instances, somebody was healed. And then what would Jesus do? Or what would He tell them after they were healed? He'd say to them, don't, no, don't, don't run off into the, town or village or city and tell everyone what happened. It's kind of weird because we would think if I had that kind of power, I'd want everybody to know about it. There could be prestige in that. There could be influence in that. But Jesus didn't want them to do this because he didn't want people to mix up the reason for which he came. He didn't want people to get the idea that he was just some miracle healer who had come and and that was all that he had come to do. But now, 
Jesus himself is the one who goes into the city, into Jerusalem, in order to start to tell people why of which he actually came, and in order to start to show people the miracle that he truly came to accomplish. And that miracle that he came to accomplish will not be whenever he gives someone else life after death, but actually the miracle of God when Jesus himself will not be near death, but will in fact die. And then God in his power will raise him. Jesus is bringing these themes together. He's bringing these pictures together of all that that, that is revealing who he is and, and showing it, not in a physical sense so that people could get wrong impressions, but in a physical, but in a supernatural sense so that people could glorify and behold the glory of God who dwells before them in the flesh of a man. And so as, as, as this starts to be unpacked in this passion narrative, we start to see how this narrative reaches beyond just an event in a week 2,000 years ago, but it reaches, uh, as you saw in verse 21, Jesus writing, I'm going to go do what has been told of me or what has been written of me, what God has sovereignly ordained. But now we're going to see even how it stretches into our day as well today. It stretches beyond way, way, way before 2,000 years ago and stretches all the way into eternity. So verses 22 to 24, they're eating. Jesus takes bread. He gives thanks. He breaks it. He tells his disciples, take, eat, this is my body. Then he takes the cup and he gives thanks and he offers it to them and they all drink from it. And then he tells them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Saying this in verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many. This is directly quoting from the prophecy in Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, 12 The the blood of the suffering servant of God would be poured out for many. And so Jesus is starting to develop this picture of himself as the perfect, complete uh, sacrifice for sins. And he gives thanks and he he says, take take it, this is my body. Take the cup and he offers it to them and they drink from it. He said, this is the blood of my covenant poured out for you in Old Testament imagery blood of a covenant would be sprinkled on the altar to, set, to, to symbolize the, 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 the commitment of the covenant. And he's saying, my blood of the covenant of God to you and providing your, redeem, your redemption, providing you eternal life is, is poured out upon you through the blood of Christ shed for you. And so Jesus is starting to reveal this picture. He's saying, you do this in remembrance of me. See, as Baptists, so often when we speak of the Lord's Supper, when we speak of communion, we get bogged down in what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that a person is converted or that a person receives new life or they're made right with God through taking of communion. It is simply an outward picture, but it is an outward visible picture given to Jesus of an inward reality of what we have received as his people. And so Jesus, looking back and looking forward and uh, in giving this picture to his, peop- to his disciples in this moment, consider, go out of that upper room for a moment and go throughout Jerusalem where hundreds of thousands of pilgrims have gathered for the Passover, for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it's, in, and it's in this setting that they are gathered, and yet it's in the Lord's Supper meal of the bread and the juice that this tells a story that the Passover meal, which, which there was a fever pitched throughout Jerusalem about, Jesus is saying, this Passover meal, it, it anticipates me. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we too look back on that body broken and that blood shed. And we look back and we share in reminding ourselves of the fact that we 
no longer have to go and make sacrifice of a perfect Passover lamb every year. Or every Passover lamb. There wasn't a perfect lamb. Jesus was the perfect final offering. And as we remind ourselves of that in, in sharing in the bread and in the juice, we not only remind ourselves of His body broken, His blood shed, and, and, and the blood of the covenant that's poured out for us, but we remind ourselves of verse 25 in, in anticipating. He says, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. We look back and we look forward proclaiming the glories of Christ's redeeming work and proclaiming all that we share in Christ and the means by which we have in the means by which we in a in a very uh, uh, spiritual sense have 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 feasted on Jesus and have drank his blood and in him we have found life for in doing so we 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 recognize in, in, in what the Lord's Supper symbolizes is the fact that we have looked upon Jesus for spiritual life. We have looked upon Him in repentance of our sin and in belief in Him for salvation. You see, when we gather for the Lord's Supper, it is a meal where grace is magnified, grace is, is, is symbolized, it is, not, it, it, it is visualized to those who partake because judgment was poured out upon the one who was broken and His blood was shed. And so when we come together in sharing of this, when we come together and we hear, take, eat, this is my body, and we take the cup and we give thanks for it, and we remember the blood of the covenant poured out for many, we have a, a symbolic picture here of a reality that is far more powerful, that is far more compelling than a picture of a bunch of Western college guys gathering in a McDonald's for burgers and sharing the bond of their cultural norms. For we have a bond that is shared together in the blood of Christ shed for our sins. So in partaking of communion together, in partaking of the elements together, we who once were, were, were idolatrous in, in whatever ways, in finances, in relationships, in, 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 in academics, or whatever the case may be, we who once were ensnared in sexual sin, we who once were, were cheating in our classwork in our, or in our workplaces or in our marriages or anywhere else in between, or we who simply were the smugly, religious, arrogant who didn't think that we needed the blood shed of a lamb for our sins, we broken by our sin as we see the reigning Christ on the cross, we see Him victorious over sin and death in His resurrection. It is in that context that we share in this juice and in this bread, celebrating the Lamb who atoned for our sins. The Lord's Supper tells us that we should have had judgment for that sin that we brought to the table. That first Lord's Supper was shared by cowards who rejected Jesus. And they didn't even know they were about to reject Jesus. And yet He shared it with them in His grace. And the Lord's Supper today and every day into eternity will be shared by those of us who do not deserve to be at that table. Who do not deserve the meal of Christ's perfect sacrifice for us. And yet we are recipients of it. All because of grace. All because of grace.
and we reflect on that past event. And we anticipate one day sitting down for a feast with our Lord where we will perfectly celebrate His glory and that grace. When He says in verse 25, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. We are reminded as we share in that meal over the broken body and the blood that was shed that there is a healed body and blood that perfectly flows through that body. And as Revelation 19 tells us, we look forward to that day when there will not be a broken body and blood shed that we are gathering around. For we will gather in the presence of the one that we feast upon. We will gather in His presence and we will enjoy a meal with Him that is a meal of grace, a meal of mercy, and a meal of Christ where we are fellowshipping with Him. For it is in Him and in the spiritual feasting on Him and believing in Him in repentance and faith that we know that we will see Him and feast with Him when the kingdom comes. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank You for the gift of the Lord's Supper, for the gift of communion. And Lord, we pray that You would help us to not approach it casually or flippantly in the days ahead when we share in it, but help us to approach it with humility and with gladness and with gratitude for the body of our Lord and the blood of our King that were shed and poured out as a covenant for us. For we are your people. We are your people. And it is in Christ that we hope. Amen.